Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFace podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 280, and today's guest is Travis Sridhar, founder and CEO of Content. I first met Travis about 10 years ago. It was an era where there was a resurgence in the Boston tech scene, a new level of excitement that was fueled by a crop of young entrepreneurs who were building companies that were powered by accelerators or incubators like Techstars, Dogpatch Labs, Bolt, and others. What is great about this era in the Boston tech scene is that many of these entrepreneurs, like Travish, have exited and are now on to building their next startup. Having successful serial entrepreneurs is a critical part of the success of a long-standing major startup ecosystem. Not only do they have more experience and lessons learned from their prior company, but they can also think longer term and swing for the fences. Shravish's last company was Convey, a company that coined the term backend as a service with their platform for mobile developers. The company was acquired by Progress in 2017. His current company is called Content, which is looking to become the trusted platform for compliance. Its trust cloud will help eliminate those dreaded compliance and security questionnaires that you get from companies that take forever to fill out. The company announced its $18 million Series A round of funding led by OpenView earlier this year. In this episode of our podcast, we'll cover lots of great topics, like advice for founders on the acquisition process, Shravish's background growing up, including how he got involved as an early employee at a startup called United Devices that was a precursor to cloud computing, the story of Convey and its acquisition by Progress, all the details on content and what the future looks like for the company, advice for getting started as an angel investor, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, this week's episode is sponsored by MarketMuse, a content intelligence platform that sets the standard for content quality. Their AI-powered software enables companies to create predictably better content at scale that increases traffic and engagement, improves productivity, and drives revenue. Get more out of your content with packages starting at $0 per month, that's free, plus you can get 20% off the MarketMuse standard plan by using our code FIZZ20, that's fizz 20 at checkout. Go to marketmuse.com to get started. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Shravish. Shravish, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure to be on, Keith. How are you doing? I am doing great. And, uh, you know, I think this podcast episode was a, a long time in the making. We go way back. When I think of you and, uh, you know, we're going to talk about one of your startups, Convey. It was like this resurgence of the Boston tech scene. You know, Techstars was doing a fantastic job. Oh, they still continue to do a fantastic job, but they kind of like implanted themselves and really started fostering these companies that ended up being very successful. They had so many great classes. So um, we're going to talk about that. But uh, as an entrepreneur, you've been part of multiple companies of which you've seen um, a couple successful acquisitions. So I thought that'd be a good starting point because I just think as entrepreneurs, um, it's a mystery of how that process happens from original interest of an acquirer. You know, is it through a business development deal? Is it someone just blindly reaches out to you through email and it's magical to the due diligence process to the actual, you know, close to your now part of an entity. So I just thought since you've been through it multiple times, it would be a, a good thing to share with other entrepreneurs. Sure. Acquisitions happen primarily for three reasons. Reason number one is a large company has decided strategically that they want to do something in your space. That's reason number one. Reason number two is a large company finds that they're already doing something in your space, but they're losing out to you because they're competing with you against uh, certain enterprise deals and you beat them in those enterprise deals. And reason number three is you've created a new category and you've created a lot of buzz and the large company feels like that's a category that's going to expand their total addressable market. And so they want to acquire you to increase their town. Uh, that's usually one of the three reasons that acquisitions happen and different companies fall into each bucket when it comes to acquisition interest. So once that interest happens, then is it like a, almost like a dating thing where you're like, okay, you're interested in us. Are we interested in you? What are the terms we're talking about? Due diligence, lawyers, like, like it's, 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 it's a big undertaking. I think most, what most startups should know, most startup founders should know is most acquisition processes never happen. 
Uh, they never close. See, that's good advice right there. That's good advice. Why is that? For a variety of reasons, uh, large companies are often on a fishing expansion where they want to learn, but they're not willing to actually acquire. And there's an entire team that is looking to learn about the market. And they may claim that they're interested in making an acquisition, but maybe there's not complete sponsorship in making it happen. Other reasons might include that you're not as shiny as they thought you were, uh, because a lot of startups on the outside will talk a big game, but when you start really understanding the business, you realize that there isn't a there there uh, in the startup. And other reasons could include economic conditions, politics, your executive sponsor leaving the company, uh, a variety of reasons why acquisitions won't happen. But at the end of the day, you have to treat any acquisition process like you would a sales process. And that means you have to constantly qualify the person who's interested. You have to understand why. You, understand, you have to understand whether they have the budget, what budget do they have, when they want to make the acquisition, who's the executive sponsor, who's the influencers, you have to think of it as a sales process and you have to do all of the things you would do in a normal sales process. And I think that's a lesson that a lot of startup founders forget. Because that would help you understand kind of their true goal of maybe just curious and trying to understand a little bit more what you're doing, kicking tires. Um, and that, because obviously if you are serious, it's going to involve an incredible amount of your time and focus, right? Which is getting which is offset from the day-to-day -day running the business. And not only your time, your entire executive team, or at least your close executive team is going to get involved. Uh, there's going to be a lot of diligence that happens at every step of the way. And as the diligence expands, you have to bring in more people into the fold uh, from your company. And for whatever reason, if the acquisition falls through, it is a fairly large psychological shock to the entire startup team because a large company took you through diligence and backed out. Uh, and that can be really difficult for people. And so you need to be extremely meticulous as a startup founder, as a CEO on how you run the process from your end. And you also need to make sure that you're not bringing people in into the fold unnecessarily because you still have to build the business. They still have to grow the business. And, if this doesn't work out, you still have to continue focusing on your customers, your employees, your product, et cetera. Uh, and so it's a really important process to think through. And the best advice I would give founders is reach out to other CEOs, reach out to your investors, reach out to colleagues and friends who've been through the process and ask them for advice on how to do it. That's great, great, great feedback. All right, let's rewind the clock. So where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? I grew up in a city called Chennai in the southern part of India. Uh, it's a, one of the large, four, four largest cities in the country. Uh, I was an introvert as a child. I still am an introvert. I'm a, I'm a trained extrovert, as I like to tell people. Um, and I was very competitive. Uh, and my whole objective was if somebody told me that I couldn't do something and I felt I could do it, I wanted to prove them wrong and I would work really, really hard to learn a new skill, to read something new, to excel in something, uh, and then kept expanding my knowledge and expanding my skill set and just doing lots and lots of things as a kid. So what brought you to UT Austin to uh, study computer science? I, uh, I When I graduated from high school, I wanted to go and make my own life. And everybody said that that's not possible. And this goes back to what I said earlier, when somebody told me something's not possible, I wanted to prove them wrong and go do it. And so if you put a finger on the globe where I grew up in Chennai and you put a finger on the other side of the world, it's basically Texas. Hmm. And so I said, I'm gonna go halfway across the world and I'm gonna figure out life of my own. It also turned out that UT Austin had a top 10 computer science program. And I applied, I got in, and I tell people that my single biggest 
accomplishment in my life is that I came to this country as an 18-year-old undergrad, never been to America before. And I put myself through college and graduated debt-free in four years. And if I could do that, I could do anything I put my mind into. Absolutely. Very, very cool and inspirational. I love those stories like that. All right. So after you did graduate, how'd you get your career started? I was part of the founding team of a company called United Devices straight out of college. Uh, The entrepreneurs who were founding that team were trying to do something in the area of distributed computing. And that was my undergraduate thesis. And so we met through my professor who was advising me. And I had done a lot of work in that area and I decided to join the founding team. And we started that company in 2000. And the idea was to harness all of the PCs and servers and desktops in the world and make it look like one virtual supercomputer so that people could do large scale computing without having to buy thousands of machines. And instead they could use the power of machines that were connected to the internet as one large supercomputer. And that became an area of computing called grid computing, which then evolved and is now cloud computing. Right. Yeah. Cause this is 1999, 2000 timeframe. Yeah. So yeah, yeah the cloud, <laughs> which what you just described, like that's the cloud. So this was a precursor to that. Yeah. It was funny when we were drawing pictures on the board, architecture diagrams and explaining to customers what we were doing, we would draw a cloud and inside the cloud, we would draw computers and we would draw lines connecting the computers. And we decided to call this industry grid computing because we were building a grid of computers. What we should have done is rather called it cloud computing because we kept drawing clouds, but none of us decided to call it cloud computing. (laughs) Uh, So cool. All right, so that was one of the companies that you were part of that ended up getting acquired, right? That's right. Got acquired by a company called Univa, which then got acquired by Altair. And the really cool part of that story is fast forward 12 years since the acquisition, the software is still working. It's still live. It's being used by certain departments in the U.S. government to do high performance computing to crack encryption cord for terrorists. It's being used by pharmaceutical companies to try to find cures for diseases, including the recent, uh, one of the COVID vaccines, some of the trials were done on that software. Uh, So it's great to see that the software is still running in production after all these years, and most importantly, helping uh, society and helping innovation happen at a much faster pace. Yeah, and I think that's a good example of an acquisition that had longevity. Sometimes after a certain duration of time, the product is sunset and it just didn't quite work out as everyone expected, but that's awesome to hear. So what did you do after that? I took a lot of time off. Uh, That was a hard journey. I learned a lot, lived in Europe, built a business in Europe, and I was tired. And so I decided to take some time off. And that's when I met uh, this amazing woman who uh, we were dating and she was coming to Boston to start her PhD and I was still in London. And uh, after a few months of courtship, I decided that we were going to get married and she agreed. And I ended up in Boston. And uh, that's why I tell people that I moved to Boston for love. And then after a couple of years of taking it easy, I decided to uh, start a new business which was in the area of helping software developers build mobile apps. Uh, and that was the business Kinvey that I started in Boston in 2011. So this is, so I've known you for a long time, but never knew how you ended up in Boston. Now the pieces are all together. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I often tell people that I, I thought I was never going to move back to the U S I thought I was done. And it was the, inconvenience of a transatlantic relationship and courtship that forced me to move to Boston because uh, she wasn't moving back to Europe. And I said, if we're going to get married, then I have to move here. All right. Convey. 
iPhone launches 2007. I'm not sure when the app store really started to take shape, but apps then, you know, 2011, whenever weren't what apps are now, <laughs> right? Yeah. So what was the state of the, what was the problem that you noticed and, and what led you down the path of solving it? Most apps in the year 2010, 2011, 2012 were really boring. They were really static applications. They helped you play simple games. They weren't very interactive. They weren't social. They weren't location sensitive. Uh, they were very static applications that you would play a game on or you would use to take some notes and things like this. The innovation that happened around the year 2012 was people realized that if you can build an app that uses multimedia, that can share information with other people, that can use location and do things that are contextual, it starts to make the app a hell of a lot more interesting. And to do that, you not only needed to build the app, but you also needed to build a backend for the app to store all this information, to have a notion of a user, user's identity and preferences and things of that nature. And so our insight was developers building apps had front-end experience but they weren't very good at building secure, scalable backend capabilities. And so what if we could build a platform that gave you the backend out of the box? And so we called it backend as a service. We created a brand new category in cloud computing. It had over 40 startups that were in that category at, uh, at any given point in time. And it grew really quickly. And eventually we started competing against the likes of Amazon and Microsoft and Google, because they also realized that their cloud platforms could be enhanced to deliver back into service to mobile developers. And so you obviously had this idea, you built out a product, like how did you actually get traction? Like how did, how did developers learn about Convey if you were competing against other startups and the, you know, the tech giants out there? The feedback I give any entrepreneur, and we, we took this feedback and we lived this ourselves, is in the early stages of startup building, you achieve growth in three phases. The first phase is going after friends in your network, people that are part of some sub-networks, and getting them to introduce you to their friends and so on and so forth. So it's there's no magic to it the first 50, 100, 200 developers that used our product came from either people we knew or people they knew. And it was a simple email. This is what I'm doing. This is the problem I'm solving. I think you would be interested in checking out. Here's a video. Would you be interested in chatting? And seven times out of 10, eight times out of 10, people would take a short meeting. We'd show them what we did. They'd like it. We'd onboard them and they start using it. So that's phase one, which is your initial traction to get early adopters to use your product. Phase two was you had to determine how you could get those customers and users who really like your product to evangelize and help you grow. And so we allowed developers to invite their colleagues into the product because very often software engineering is done as a team. So we created a single player mode and then we created a multiplayer mode. And so developers brought their colleagues and their friends to collaborate on projects. So that was sort of the next phase of growth. And then finally, to get to a much larger audience, that's when you raise capital and you start marketing to developers either through outbound channels, which is not very successful for developers, or primarily inbound channel where you're there for them when they're searching for capabilities that your product provides. Uh, and we took that three-phase approach to growth. Yeah, because when you were building Convey, it wasn't like, I think, um, you know, over the past five, six, seven years, there's a lot of products that help developers and everyone touts, you know, build a community and you got to, you know, grow within a developer 
mindset through a community-based approach, but um, but you are early compared to what these companies are trying to accomplish now. Yeah, I mean, you when you when you sell to developers, you have to you have to remember four things. <clears throat> First, any developer tool, no matter what you're building, will have both religion and fashion. Religion, because developers believe that a certain way to do something is the right way. And so you have to figure out what religion you belong to and what religion you're communicating to the developer network. Then within a certain religion, there's fashion because religion changes every three years or every four years because there's always a new way of doing things. And so the art is to figure out how to get people to become part of your belief system on what you're doing as a developer tool. And secondly, how do you continue to educate them that this is the right way to do this, this is the cool way to do this, and this is the fashion that they should be part of. Uh, And I think a lot of developer tooling companies forget that, uh, and that's why they end up failing. So as we mentioned before, you were part of Techstars, which that was a great class. I mean, it was Evertrue, GrabCAD, Help Scout, Ginger.io, Promobox, all companies that have had different levels of success, but all a great, great class. So, so what did you what did you take away from that experience? I was brand new to Boston. I didn't know anybody here. And when I started Kinvey, I knew that for us to be successful long-term, we had to be a venture-backed company uh, because building a platform took capital over time. And so I needed to build a network of investors uh, who could collaborate with us and who could support us in our growth story. And one of the ways I decided we could do this is by joining Techstars. And we applied, we were fortunate enough to get in. And it helped us in a very short period of time build an amazing community of friends and well-wishers, people that really, uh, they lent in to help each other and they really believed in the give first mentality. And that's how I met you, Keith, where you were uh, somebody who was willing to step in and help us during our early days. I remember you had a team come to our office and you did a video about our startup and you put it on VentureFizz. And because there were, People like this all over Boston who wanted the startup ecosystem to succeed. And that was amazing. And all of us in that cohort helped each other. Uh, We introduced each other to investors. We gave each other help. We were the shoulders to cry on when things were not going well. Uh, And it was an amazing community. We're all still really close and really good friends after all these years. Yeah, no, it was definitely a great... Because that was when... um... Katie Ray and Reed were running it, right? That's right. I mean, they were amazing leaders of the Techstars Boston ecosystem. Uh, they did a phenomenal job attracting great startups and great entrepreneurs to come and be part of the ecosystem. And what they did even better was to get uh, various investors and entrepreneurs in the ecosystem to come in and mentor uh, the startups. And like you said, that was definitely the golden period of the Boston startup ecosystem, I'd say 2011 to about 2014 or 15 was amazing. It really was. And all the gatherings that were happening, just every, like you said, everyone was like just rallying around. Let's, you know, crush this and make it a great success story of all these companies. Keith, why aren't we doing this today? Well, I mean, we could talk about that now. It's the question I had for you later. It just, it seems like Boston's very fragmented again. Like it doesn't have the same oomph that it had before um yeah and i don't know why <laughs> like I, I mean i don't know it was just with those a young crop of entrepreneurs that all came together and started doing these things and then that kind of spawned gatherings and those not that you need parties to get close together but i don't know just those the more social gatherings of people cross-pollinating and looking out for each other and i just Sometimes I wonder, I'm like, should I put the networking calendar back on VentureFizz? But I'm like, well, are there events that still happen that would be worthwhile? Like, I don't even know. It's a good question. I don't know the answer to the question either, but I will tell you, I have three observations. The first observation is is what you said, which is events. 
I remember when I came here in 2010, 2011, I, uh, I hadn't started my company yet. And so all I did was I discovered Venture Fairs. There's a couple of other websites that had uh, links to events that had a calendar uh, that told you all the events you could attend. And it felt like there were a lot of people who were taking the initiative to organize events to help the startup ecosystem. And I don't know if that's the case now. I, I do know that there's Startup Boston and that happens once a year. Which is phenomenal. I mean, Stephanie is phenomenal what she's accomplished there. But like you said, it's once a year. She'll have a periodic event here, but yeah. that's like an anchor that is supporting and doing a tremendous amount of good. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember Eric Paley used to do this amazing founder talk series where he'd invite people uh, who'd built startups to come and talk about their journeys. Uh, tech stars did events uh, back then. Uh, there were a lot Web of Innovators these. Group, David Beisel, Web, Web yeah, Innovators Group. Rob Go and David, awesome. they did an yeah. amazing show. Uh, MIT had a show that talked about angel investors and how to be, do angel investing. So a lot of events that were happening. So any given month, there were probably three or four amazing events that people would come to and participate of different sizes, different topics. Uh, I think that's one. I, I, I don't know if that's still the case today. Uh, so that's number one. Number two was there were a lot of entrepreneurs and to some extent VC firms that were organizing social meetups for early stage founders. There were these dinners you could go to, drinks, get togethers, invite, you were invited to people's homes. Founders got to become friends with each other. Uh, and that created connection. And then the third thing was then the founders that became friends started organizing events. I remember uh, people like Ben Carcio, myself, a few others, we did uh, a Christmas party uh, for all of the young startups that couldn't afford their own holiday party. So we convinced a whole bunch of people to fund it and we did a yearly party. Yeah, uh, I remember that. Sarah Hodges used to do an amazing event with, uh, uh, with Jennifer. So there was a series of things that, that entrepreneurs did. Uh, and that also created us. And you put all those together, that was magic. I'm laughing because I just, you said the Sarah Hodges event with Jen Lum. Uh, that was the Dave Balter tech prom. That's right. That's right. <laughs> because Dave never went to prom. Right. I mean, that was just that was amazing, legendary. Right? It was amazing. Amazing. Yeah. So fun. I think even Mike Troiano was involved in it. How do you bring, how do you bring both the experienced entrepreneurs and investors doing their own storytelling and mentorship from the top down? And then from the bottoms up, how do you get the entrepreneurs involved, not only in getting to know each other, but also creating a community with events? And if both of those things can happen simultaneously, I think you can recreate what we had for those few years. Yeah, I agree. It's, uh, I don't know, maybe it's fine out there and everybody's happy and doing great things because there still are great companies being built and there's still lots of great investors. So it's happening. It just doesn't have that same buzz, I guess, for lack of a better term. But um, all right, so back to Convey. So raised multiple rounds of venture funding and... You were acquired by Progress, which is a Boston-based tech company. So how did that come together? It was an amazing outcome. Progress had this really great CEO that, that they brought in. His name is Yogesh Gupta. Uh, he was at CA, and he'd also run a couple of startups on his own. And they brought him in to reimagine the future of Progress Software, which, is, which has been an application development company at its core. They sell to developers and they sell dev tools to developers. Yogesh came in and he looked at the market and he saw with the various dev tools out there and specifically in the digital space, what he found interesting was Progress already had a front-end technology product that they had acquired called Telerik. And he wanted to complement that with backend tools. Uh, and he found Kinvey, he really loved the business we built. He loved the customers we had. The fact that we're in Boston was extremely complimentary to progress also being headquartered here. 
Um, and we really hit it off. It was an amazing repo. He loved the team. He, loved, he and I got along really well. Uh, and the acquisition happened pretty seamlessly in 2017. That's awesome. All right, let's fast forward to what you're up to these days with Content. So what is Content? I started Content in 2020, right after everything shut down. Okay. Stuck here in my basement in the house. <laughs> I said, what better thing to do than start a company? Right. Uh, and the, the premise of Content started because having done two startups myself and being an active angel investor and helping a lot of companies, I've always been bothered by this question of can a business trust another business? Are we doing all the things that we claim to be doing from a legal standpoint, from a regulatory standpoint, from a compliance standpoint, from a data security standpoint? All of the things that we're supposed to be doing under this umbrella of governance, are we doing all of those things? And the conclusion I came to was we're not. Every company that claims that they can be trustworthy has one or more skeletons in their closet where they're not doing the things they should be doing. And I said, why is that? The conclusion I came to is that we have tools in place to measure everything in business. You can measure the number of podcasts you just did in the last month. You can measure the number of leads. You can measure your burn rate. You can measure your revenue. You can measure the number of people you recruited uh, in the last month and so on and so forth. But if I asked any small size company, medium sized company, enterprise company, are you meeting all your legal, contractual, regulatory trust obligations today? The answer is, I think so, let me get back to you. <laughs> but the real answer is no, we're not. Right. We are all sitting on a mountain of liability. The problem is we don't know because we're not measuring. And so I said, why can't you build the system of record for trust? Can you codify trust? And I got excited by that because it, it aligns with a personal philosophy of mine, which is if you're gonna do something and you tell somebody you're gonna do it, you should do it. And if you can't, just be transparent about it and say you can't do it. Right. We don't have tools in our business that allows us to do that today. And so the idea of content was, can you build the trust club, which becomes the system of record of trust for the modern enterprise? And the first trust use case we focused on was meeting all your data security and data privacy obligations that you claim to have with your customers. So a customer gives you your data, they ask you to keep it secure, they ask you to be compliant with things like GDPR and CCPA and SOC2 and so on and so forth. Can you do that in an effortless manner without lying? And can you make the whole thing affordable? And I got excited by it because everybody I talked to said it couldn't be done. Mm -hmm. And so I said, I think people want to be trustworthy. People want to be truthful. People want to have the right intent in earning trust with their customers. Nobody's ever built a product to help them do that. And so that motivated me to see if we could build a system of record trust for the enterprise. So how does it work? It's actually pretty simple. We took a page out of TurboTax's book. If you've ever used TurboTax to file your taxes, TurboTax asks you about your life. And as you answer the questions, it asks you to connect TurboTax to things like your bank and your payroll and things of that nature. And it collects information. And as it learns more, it maps it to the tax code. So somebody like you and me who are not CPAs can use TurboTax to file our taxes. And Kintent's the same way. We onboard you by asking you questions about your business. 
the infrastructure you use, the tools you use, the software products, your people. We ask you questions. And as you're answering these questions, we ask you to connect us to the products that you use to run your business, Amazon, Google, Slack, et cetera. And as we're doing that, we're creating your security and privacy compliance program and mapping it to the various compliance standards on the fly. And so at the end of it, the product intelligently creates a personalized compliance program for you based on your business. And we let you test it because now we've connected to those systems and we're able to run security tests against them to validate that everything is being run correctly. And you get real-time continuous trust validation of all your data security and data privacy obligations. And like, I mean, one of the things that you talk about on, uh, you know, your website is, you know, revenue generating compliance. So when I think of it, it's like you go through this sales cycle and uh, everyone seems eager. Then all of a sudden the record scratches. It's like, whoa, we need to make sure your security data compliance and all of a sudden you get this request from the security team of the company that you're hoping to do business with. And that's when things start to drag. <laughs> it may actually get through the other end, but it's yeah. all of a sudden going to be like months of, of just back and forth. But with what you're building, you know, it's a system of record where it's almost like push button. Here's what you asked for. This is everything. Let's go. Everything's yeah. back on track again. The secret in this industry, Keith, is there's not a single startup in the world that I've met so far, and I've talked to hundreds of them, that is doing compliance of the goodness of their heart. <laughs> I just feel like doing compliance today. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. Nope. Never has a human said before. <laughs> startups are pursuing compliance to drive them. Right. Because their customers need it from them. And so the insight we had with Kintent was, let's build a platform that can programmatically and in an automated fashion help you achieve compliance so that you can do it cost effectively and without a whole lot of manual work, while at the same time tying it to answering security reviews and security questionnaires as part of the sales process. And so we use APIs to do compliance testing and we use AI to generate answers to security questionnaires truthfully because we know what your compliance program is all about. And so when a customer sees your responses, they look at it and say, wow, this is actually pretty robust because you're not giving me check the box answers. You're actually telling me information about your company, your controls, your policies and so on. And it shows that you take this stuff seriously and you have a certain level of maturity on how you're running your security program. And so revenue generating compliance is compliance that your sales team can use to earn customer trust, accelerate sales and close deals faster. All right, so from what I gathered, you've uh, raised two rounds of capital, $4 million seed in 2021. And then this year you announced an $18 million series A led by OpenView, which OpenView, uh, Boston-based VC firm, famous for their PLG approach, product-led growth, which was coined by one of their investors, uh, Blake Bartlett, who was actually on our podcast and he talked deeply about that. Now, I'm going to tie that piece of the equation of OpenView to something that you've just recently announced, which is a free self-service version of your trust cloud. So talk about the decision there and and what people can get from, from that approach. If you go back to the founding thesis of Kintent, we want to build a system of record for trust. We want everybody to adopt this idea that trust can be measured and proven in a transparent fashion. So to do that, the first step is you have to democratize it. You have to make it accessible for any company in the world to be able to do it because cost shouldn't be a burden and effort shouldn't be a burden. Even if you make cost and effort a burden, you have to make knowledge accessible too. So the three-pronged approach we took was can we build a product that allows somebody who's not an expert to use it that allows somebody who doesn't have a whole lot of budget 
to use it. And allow somebody who's got a small set of te a small team or a small set of resources to use it. And so the reason we raise capital from a firm like OpenView who understands the product-led growth methodology was our core thesis of success for Content was we want to build a product that somebody can use completely on their own, self-service. Somebody can use at a very low budget, starting with free, and somebody can use and learn how to continuously improve on their compliance without needing consultants or subject matter experts to come and help them. And so what we announced last week, in the first week of December 2022, is the world's first free self-service offering for startups to become compliant with both SOC 2 and NIST CSF, SOC 2 being a standard that a lot of companies ask for in the US, and NIST CSF being a standard championed by the US government on best practices from a security standpoint. And so it's a, it's a single offering where you do the work once and you become ready for both SOC 2 and NIST CSF for free. Wow. What's the current size of the business? Meaning like how many employees do you have? Like what are the plans for growth ahead? We've grown fairly quickly. We were at the beginning of the year, we were about 18, 19 people. Uh, we're about 57 now and growing faster, even more. It turns out compliance is a big market. Who knew? No, I, that's part of the reason why we were excited about this business. It's a big market. Everyone has to do it. In the last two years, uh, data security and data privacy compliance has gone from a nice to have to a must have. If you don't have it today, you can't sell to large enterprise customers. So everyone has to do it. Mm -hmm. And so it's allowed us to grow very quickly and raise the capital, grow our team, but most importantly, build a business with a mission. And the mission is, can we help companies build more trustworthy businesses? Can we help board of directors have better governance? And can we help customers buy with more confidence? Uh, and we built a team that really aligns with that mission and really wants to go make it happen. So you're right. Compliance is something every company deals with large, small, like a venture fizz. Like when, um, this company implements a new vendor system. We need you to fill out this security questionnaire. A drop of tear streams out of my eye because I'm like, oh my God, I got to fill that out. And it's going to take me like two hours and most of it doesn't apply to me. So if I had content where I just fill it out once and if I can just, so I'll just hypothetically, if this becomes like almost like the adopted standard, I could just say, oh, here's my content trust cloud and then they're like, oh cool thank you that makes our life easier too type of thing right like that's kind of what we're hopefully moving towards absolutely Kate, i'll give you an analogy um i talked to a lot of CISOs all over the world who wear apple watches and i asked them i said you're wearing an apple watch why are you wearing it and they said oh you know i can get information immediately i know when i'm getting emails I can track my health. I know how many steps I have. I know my blood pressure, you know, things of that nature. And I look at them and say, why aren't you doing the same thing for your security broker? Why are you asking somebody to fill out a spreadsheet? Why can't they just click a button and share information that is current and accurate? And they said, well, nobody's ever done that. And so I think the movement is exactly the way you described it. What the vision for us as a business is we want to live in a world where trust can be verified in a programmatic, accurate and contractual fashion where somebody clicks a button and says, you tell me what your expectations are and I will share with you programmatically how I meet those expectations. No, it's, it makes a world of sense and a massive, massive, massive market opportunity. It's a massive market opportunity for two reasons. One, like we discussed earlier, everyone has to do it. I think second is because culturally and socially, people want to live in a world where we can trust each other. 
and tools that align with the human emotion of wanting to be trusted will go a long way in the long term. All right. So you mentioned before that uh, you've done some angel investing. So if someone was interested in getting involved in investing in companies, um, like how do you even get started with that? Like how do you identify companies that are raising capital? How do you decide what size of checks to maybe get started? Like what what advice would you give to someone that's just kind of interested in, in starting out as an angel investor? I think the first piece of advice I would give somebody starting off as an angel investor is why do you want to do it? You shouldn't do it. And the reason is people think of angel investing as a mechanism to make money. I think most statistics say that most angel investors end up losing money. Mm-hmm. And so what is your objective of being an angel investor? And everybody has their own reasons. It's important for you to identify the reasons that make sense to you outside of the money. For example, I'm an active angel investor because I genuinely enjoy supporting and interacting with other entrepreneurs. And anything that I could do to learn from them, see their journeys, contribute to their journeys, gives me a lot of satisfaction. And so everyone has to find their own reason to being an angel investor. Once you're committed to it, the amount of capital you're going to deploy is your own personal risk profile. Some people say don't allocate more than one to 2% of your network. Some people say 10% of your network. There's a sliding scale and you have to treat angel investing as a pretty volatile and risky asset class. And so whatever your risk profile is, you need to allocate no more than that for angel investing. But once you're, once you're committed to being an angel investor, I think the important thing is to build a rapport with the entrepreneurs and build a network with other founders and other angel investors. Because to answer your question of how do you find good opportunities, it comes from networking. If people see that you're a value add, if people see that you're genuinely helpful, they will recommend you to other entrepreneurs. And that's how you get into interesting opportunities and you could be an investor in interesting opportunities. Uh, The other way to do it is to build long-term relationships with entrepreneurs because most entrepreneurs are going to start their second and third company. So you may not be in their first company, but then if you build a long-term relationship or friendship with them, they might give you the option to participate in their next venture. Yeah, no, that's great advice. And I'm going to add to that. Like if you're, not networked yet and don't necessarily have the wherewithal to to dial into the local ecosystem. You know, Angel List is super useful if you join some of their syndicates of people that are out there hustling and building up their portfolio. Like, like I've found the syndicates to be super, super useful for finding different opportunities. Yeah. All right. Three apps you can't live without. Three apps I can't live without. I am a father of three children, young children. Mm -hmm. And so the first app would be the camera app because I'm taking a lot of photos and videos of the young kids. (laughs) Okay. My parents live in India. So the second app would be FaceTime Mm -hmm. because I need to see them and talk to them on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And the third app, and this is going to sound really funny, is the phone app because I like to call people and talk to people versus being on Zoom calls all day. So it's probably a very non-traditional answer to what you're expecting, but I'd say the phone, FaceTime, and camera. That is fantastic, though. I like those answers because usually I get, when I interview founders, like uh, Gmail, Slack, and calendar. (laughs) (laughs) I know I can live without those three apps because... After every startup exit I had, I took a couple of years off and nobody was emailing me. Nobody was slacking me. Nobody was, I wasn't using the smartphone at all. So I know I can live without those apps, but I don't think I can live without camera, phone or FaceTime. Yep. Okay. Uh, Podcast or book recommendation? Podcast or book recommendation. I'm in a phase in my life, Keith, where I'm reading a lot of children's books. Mm -hmm. for my kids when they go to sleep. 
And I'm learning, relearning stories from my childhood. Mm-hmm. And so recently I've been reading to my kids uh, an old Indian epic called the Mahabharata, which is a story of two families uh, and the trials and tribulations of those two families. And it teaches you about integrity, learning, how to live life, conflict, war. It teaches you many of the things that we all struggle with in our lives in just one amazing story. And I find myself relearning all those stories all over again. The things that my grandmother used to teach me, I'm now teaching my kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think for those who haven't read the Mahabharata, I think they should pick it up and try to read it. It's, it's a really amazing epic on human behavior, uh, as well as how to live life to the fullest. Very cool. All right, one last question. Outside of work, outside of family, what do you like to do? I'm a big golfer. Uh, Are you? I've been playing golf. Yeah, I've been playing golf since the time I was a kid. Uh, it's my way of just going in, uh, getting away from everything and doing something that is arguably one of the hardest things you could do, which is hit a stationary ball with a club that is really not designed to hit that ball, <laughs> but you still have to make it go a long distance and make it go straight. Uh, so I play a lot of golf, uh, especially during the spring and the summer. Uh, and that keeps me occupied, but at the same time, lets me lets me achieve a really great headspace because you're out in nature, you're walking, you're playing, uh, and you come back refreshed and wanting to do more. Absolutely. Well, Stravish, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through the background story, different companies you've built, obviously what you're up to right now with Content, and all the great advice. Thank you, Pete. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.